0: Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome to Home Energy Design. I'm your host, Amanda Gates, and today's guest is Mark Gober. Now, many of you have probably never heard of Mark, at least not yet. Believe it or not, he's a fancy pants graduate of Princeton University, and he studied finance. Wait, what? Well, here's the thing. Despite his growing interest in the world of the unknown, he decided to play it safe mainly because of his sports goals. Yep, but you'll learn more about that in today's show. Here's the thing, Mark is an author of the new book that just came out, The End to Upside Down Thinking. Now, I'm excited to share this book with you because if you are a part of my tribe, you know that nothing is off limits. If it's considered weird in the eyes of mainstream, well, that means I'm gonna be all over it, But two years ago, Mark was a hardcore black and white thinker. Then he started to dive into the research. One of his materialistic views was that consciousness dies when we do. He's now broadened his horizons to include the likes of psychic phenomenon, energy healing, remote viewing, and more. And in his new book, he has the research to back it up. And something I later found out, my friend and celebrity psychic Laura Powers, who is on an upcoming show, told him that his black and white world was about to change with the evolution of his new book. How cool is that? All right. So today we're going to talk all about energy, intuition, remote viewing, and all things weird and how somebody who had a materialistic view of life suddenly joined the world of Woo. Are you ready? Let's do it. Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome to Home Energy Design. My name is Amanda Gates, and I'm super excited to have Mark Gober on the show today. Welcome.
1: Thanks, Amanda. Here.
0: So before we dive into one of the reasons that we're talking today is you've got this amazing book that came out last month, An End to Upside Down Thinking. Um, Before we dive into this, you know, your background is a little bit interesting. You're in finance. So tell us a little bit about how you chose your path and how you decided to go that route. Um, You're a fancy pants, went to Princeton, um, and then decided to write this kind of unconventional book. How did all this come out for you?
1: Well, it certainly wasn't something I planned outwardly. Maybe we can start with my educational background and work to where we are now. I started off studying economics at Princeton, um, just because that's what a lot of people did there. And I, I wasn't thrilled with it because it assumed that people were rational. And that's what all the theory was based on. So I said, this just doesn't seem fully right. So I was looking at other majors and was looking at astrophysics because the department was really strong there. And I wanted to understand what am I doing here in this universe? Where's earth? What is, what is life? Really big questions. Uh, but one of the problems was that I was on the tennis team at Princeton, which was division one program. And I was later w- one of the captains of the team. So I didn't have time to switch into the astrophysics department as a uh, someone who's in the economics department. I ended up doing psychology instead and kind of combining psychology and economics. So I studied behavioral economics, um, looking at judgment and decision making. Then from there, I went into investment banking. So I didn't really apply the psychology too much. I just went into it and um started in July of 2008 with a very large global investment bank called UBS. This was right before the crisis hit. So I was there at UBS in New York during the crisis, 2008 to 2010. Wasn't thinking at all about the big existential questions I had started to ask in college. Um, left UBS in 2010 to join my current firm. I'm at a firm called Sherpa Technology Group in Silicon Valley. We advise technology companies on innovation strategy. So that's my professional background, and I have this book that just came out on consciousness. So the origin story of that is, beyond just my having big questions about the universe dating back to college, um, is that about two years ago, I, I first learned of phenomena that didn't make sense to me by listening to podcasts. And I wasn't looking for it, I just was listening to a health podcast for the, in, in this first instance, and there was a woman who described working with energies, and she talked about communicating with non-physical beings, these were all things that I'd never heard about before. Um, so I was, I was intrigued, but not, I wasn't like swayed or anything by it. It didn't change my worldview because I was very much in the mainstream, at a very much mainstream perspective. Um, but I started looking into it a bit more. And over a few weeks, I realized that there were enough people who were saying very similar things about reality and about consciousness being kind of non-localized to the body and that people can, can work with energy using their mind and that consciousness may not die when the physical body dies. There was enough of that that I realized I needed to look into it because if any of that were real, I had to rethink all my worldviews. And basically, I got to the point where I had seen enough evidence, both anecdotal and scientific, and we can talk about that today. But there was too much for me to be able to reconcile my old worldview with this new body of evidence. And it created a major worldview shift for me. And it was extremely disorienting when it happened. And this was in the fall, winter of 2016. Um, because I was very much a, what's, what I call a materialist, meaning I thought the world was made of matter and that consciousness, my awareness, my mind comes from the matter in my brain. Um, and what I was finding is that that might not be true. So I had to rethink, well, what does it mean to be a human being? How do I rethink my whole life? Um, so that led me to eventually write a book in the summer of 2017 after having researched extensively for a year outside of my day job. I was just doing nothing basically but researching because I had to rethink everything. Um, and wrote the book over a few weekends in July. Um, it just really came out quickly. Uh, most of it was done over Fourth of July weekend, which was a four-day weekend. I just decided to lock myself in my apartment in San Francisco and see what I could do, and was able to get a lot of it on paper. was fortunate to get connected with my current agent and publisher, uh, Bill Gladstone at Waterside Productions, and, and now here we are with the book.
0: Yeah, I, I, this makes me laugh because I've been a part of this world for a very long time. I started getting into this in, in college, and you're just a baby. Um, I was in college in the 90s, and so a lot of what you talk about in the book and this idea of the materialistic view, it just makes me laugh because this this idea of your worldview has literally been mine for many, many decades. Um but what I find so interesting is that you said that the book came out very quickly. It was almost as if you channeled it, you just streamed it, which is consciousness. (laughs) And you said that you weren't looking for it, but obviously it was looking for you and it was looking for an outlet to come out and come out into the world. Um, one of the things that you kind of start off with the book is, is we've spoken uh, both about this materialistic thing. And one thing that I want to clarify is that this idea of materialism is not material goods. A lot of times we hear the word materialistic or, or material goods. And in your preface, you say, whether you realize it or not, most of modern society's thinking is based upon the philosophy known as materialism. The notion that physical material matter is fundamental in the universe. In other words, matter is the basis of all reality. So what I'm curious about is that, you know, scientists basically assume that matter is what produces consciousness. And you've got this idea in here as you get into the resistance to this paradigm that mainstream science resists this idea, vehemently rejects it, And rejects the notion that consciousness can exist independently of the body. And I'm curious as to, from your research, why are we still asking this question? (laughs) Why why are there still so many scientists with so much evidence still saying, yeah, no, that doesn't exist?
1: I don't know. It blows my mind still. Um, I think we're dealing with I think it's hard for people in general to shift worldviews. I know how hard it was for me to do it. And it took a lot of sitting with the research and actually experimenting with different energy workers and psychics and seeing it for myself. But that took time and energy and a willingness to accept that what I thought previously was wrong. And so I think not everyone is necessarily willing to do that. So I think that's part of it. I think we're also very biased by what we can see and sense with our everyday perceptions. Um, what we're talking about here are things that are not visible to the eye in many cases, and they're not things that we can always hear or that we can sense, um, but, but they, they exist. We've seen this throughout history. So germ theory, for example, the notion that bacteria could make someone sick or even kill someone, that was totally ridiculous. Like, what do you mean? This bacteria, I can't see it. You're going to say that can kill me? And now that seems silly. So there are many things throughout history where we've been through this. There's a great quote in my book from Dr. Ed Kelly at the University of Virginia. He's a Harvard PhD. He's very much on the side of understanding the the reality of consciousness. And he says that we predict with with great certainty that sociologists in the future will look back and try to figure out why it took so long for people to to turn around and and understand this broader reality. Um, Dr. Jessica Utz, who's the 2016 president of the American Statistics Association, she studied psychic phenomena on behalf of the CIA, in Congress, because the US government was running a program on this during the Cold War. And they were, they were asking her whether or not this stuff is real. And she says, using the, the standards applied to any other area of science, psychic phenomena have been well established. And she goes on to say, we should stop debating whether or not these things are real. We should accept that they're real and then spend our time understanding how they could be real. Yes. Um, <laughs> so I, you ask a great question. I, and that's part of the reason I wanted to write the book is is that I think the information is somewhat scattered and that there are bits and pieces of it where there's a, a strong piece of evidence here, but it's easy to sweep under the rug because, because it, we don't have a way of thinking about how it could potentially be real. So what I try to do in the book is start with a framework that could make all of these paranormal phenomena real, which is to make consciousness the basis of reality existing beyond space and time. And if that is true, then things like psychic abilities and surviving bodily death and communications with the deceased, and working with energy—all these things are not actually paranormal. They're what you'd expect.
0: Yeah, I think it's it's fascinating. Um, one of the things that you have in here under Dr. William Tiller is that he is, he's from the Department of the Stanford University Material Sciences area, and it says so, he sums up the situation well. He states that mainstream materialistic science has known about this category of psychic phenomenon for one or two centuries, but since it doesn't satisfy their internal self-consistency requirements of orthodox science, they either have to change their attitudes or they're doing experiments that basically they decide to sweep it under the rug. And I find that funny because Um, That was one of the things when I was reading the book, uh, you stated Jessica Utz, this idea of, can we just stop questioning it and start studying it? Like, I think we've all determined that, yes, it does exist. We don't understand it. So let's stop trying to say, yes, it does exist or doesn't exist. Let's start focusing on how and why. And one of the things that I loved that you put in the book, and it was funny because as I started reading it, I was like, this really comes down to the visual spectrum, which you put in here because um, I talk about the visual spectrum all the time on this show and, and how it's just a sliver of what the human experience can see and, and feel and hear as opposed to how far and wide it really is. And uh, in feng shui, Professor Lin, who was the grandmaster who brought this level of feng shui that I studied to uh, the, the West he used to always say today's science fiction is tomorrow's fact. And that's really kind of the overlying degree right. of what I I saw in the book. And I think that what's great is that just because something you, you can't see or doesn't make sense, doesn't necessarily mean that it's not real. So as you were reading or writing this book and, and as I was reading it, I think my question that kept coming up is, okay, so where does this leave us? Like, I, as I'm reading it, I'm like, of course, consciousness exists outside of the brain. Like, I feel like the brain brings us ego and it brings us our human experience, but it doesn't bring us consciousness. Consciousness is something that exists elsewhere. It's beyond our human existence. It's our, it's soul level basically. So, but we have all of these left brain scientists that are like, meh, you know, we're going to sweep that under the rug because that changes everything and that requires me to change everything. Everything that I've learned and studied and and all my experiments and all the money that we've invested in this So at the end of the day, it does exist. I feel like the scientists are like it's over there But we're not going to pay attention to it. So where does that leave us?
1: So I get into this at the end of the book when I talk about implications and the reason that I spent chapter after chapter going through the evidence is For the left brain scientific community that has been resistant really and people like me two-plus years ago who need that body of evidence first Uh, Mm -hmm. but if we accept that evidence to be real then what kind of reality are we in and I think the the life review in the near-death experience phenomenon is one of the more telling pieces of evidence if we want to look at evidence and where does that point us? um, rather than just making full inferences without having a base of evidence So the near-death experience phenomenon, chapter nine of my book, is one of the most compelling to me because these are instances where people have highly impaired brain function or their brain is completely off, where the person is in cardiac arrest. And we know in cardiac arrest, the heart stops, blood flow to the brain stops shortly thereafter, and the person is clinically dead. And in a number of these cases, studied by cardiologists and other scientists, people come back with memories that happened during the time of cardiac arrest. So this is no brain function and lucid conscious experience. So this is consciousness existing independently of brain function. What happens in that period is there are consistencies that have been reported throughout history dating back to the Egyptian book of the dead, the Tibetan book of the dead, Plato. People have been talking about this for a long time. And in the last few decades, this has become more prominent because our medical technology has gotten better at resuscitating patients. So people who would have died previously now are not dying, and they're coming back with these memories. One of the things that's often reported is what's known as a life review. So the person is in the near-death experience, sometimes hovers over his or her body. It's an out-of-body experience, and they're, they feel unconditional love. This is what they describe. They sometimes see things in the room that are later verified when they come back in their body when they were dead. Um, and then they have a life review where they experience their whole life in a flash, but they experience it sometimes not only from their own perspective but from the perspective of those they affected so if they harmed someone they feel the pain through that person's eyes which first of all if, if there's just one consciousness and that we're all a part of some consciousness that exists independently of our bodies that makes sense that we would be able to switch perspectives because it's just the same consciousness um, but in terms of like where does this leave us which is your question What the life review teaches is that what seems to matter in life is not material gains or how much money we made or the relationships that we were in, but it's how we treated one another and um, how we acted and the intentions that we had. That's what people come back from the near-death experience reporting is that the things that they thought mattered based on what society tells us are not what's actually important. What's important is the little things in life and how they made people feel. So that is a very potentially world-changing perspective for some people to hear that.
0: Yeah. And I, I'm glad that you brought that up because that's really the underlying thread of not only my practice that I have um, teaching people about feng shui, but also this idea of how we should treat each other, you know. Um, the the roots of my feng shui practice are are you know uh, Buddhist principles, and it's all about you know finding emptiness and having compassion and kindness for one another. And at the end of the day, the material goods mean absolutely nothing because what I have found is that people seek those external things because they're trying to fill a void within them. And I feel like it's because we miss home, right? This when you talk to people who have had a near-death experience, what I find so interesting is is if this idea of consciousness does exist when our, our, or doesn't exist when our brain dies. Yes, it's very hard to explain that, okay, there's no electrical activity and yet they're having a very surreal, very descriptive experience. And one unlike any other that we have in our human experience when they talk about, most people can't even put to words, they can't even, they can't de- use or describe with our human language what the experience was like. They, they say, well, it's, it's unconditional love, but they, they, they often say, but it's so much more than that. Like, you can, you can almost feel it, it's palpable because they can't explain what it's truly about. And most people, once they've had that near death experience or the life review, most of them come back and completely change their lives. They give up their jobs. They start donating their time. Like that's something that's not just going to happen because your brain shut off and you were having a heart attack. There's something more to that. Is that kind of what you as you're doing your research that you found?
1: Yeah, that's where I come out with the near-death experience. I think before I had written the book or had even looked at it, I had heard bits and pieces about it. And what the mainstream perspective is, is that these are hallucinations that are caused by a dying brain. So the brain's about to die. And then for reasons we don't understand, it hallucinates these things that make us feel better because that is comforting in the death process or something like that. But none of these theories are, are proven. And what's impossible to explain under this materialist perspective that consciousness comes from matter in our bodies is how can people be verifying things that happened in the room when their brain was off? They shouldn't be able to do that, and they shouldn't be. Ha- that's not a hallucination. That is a verifiable, what's known as a veridical out-of-body experience. What they're seeing in the room is verified. So that suggests to me that what's happening in these experiences, I think it's not a, a major leap to say that we're learning something about the nature of reality through these experiences. We're getting a, a glimpse. Um, what happens when we die, I'm asked that often. We can't say for certain, but this is a possibility if this is kind of on the death process where someone comes back, maybe this is a glimpse into what happens. And if that's true, then what can we learn from the near-death experience about, um, about how, what the meaning of life is? And I think that the life review and the feelings of unconditional love, the ineffability, the inability to describe things with words about the nature of reality, I think we, need to, we can learn a lot from the near-death experience.
0: Yeah, and I've read a lot of books on near-death experience, and also, um, I'm blanking out on the other gentleman's name, but Michael Newton, and there's another one who wrote Journey of Souls. Brian Weiss? Yes, Brian Weiss, yes. Um, And I read both of those back in college, and I think what was so fascinating is as I read those, especially um, Michael Newton with his stories of Catherine, is that I kind of started to, to experience this, like uh, when he was going uh, through her life experiences and all of her reincarnations with her, that the thread that was going throughout her experience was not only soul growth and lessons, but this idea of how you treat each other. And I think that there's so much to be learned from that. And to me that absolutely is way beyond the ego because the ego is what gets in our way that prevents us it, that's where the lesson comes in is is can you overcome your ego can you overcome that emotion of greed or integrity or you know can you really do that and so what i think is fascinating is is that kind of brings in this idea of einstein's theory of entanglement when you're in that soul level we hear it often, or at least I do in my world, that we are all interconnected, right? Our consciousness is all interconnected. And you get a glimpse of that in near-death experiences because they talk about how they literally are communicating with this energy sense. It's like this entanglement. And we still have it in this earthly view, but not everybody wants to believe it. But, you know, like I just finished, I love Dean Radden. You mentioned him in the book. He has a lot of experiments where they've done things, you know, in Silicon Valley and they've been able to shift energy in India. So that to me proves this theory of entanglement. And also when we're talking about just energy in general, um, you talk about in the book, uh, which I think is very much in line with Dr. Bruce Lipton uh, with the biology of belief, this idea that we are interconnected, where patients who have organ transplants experience the energy left over from the previous person. So what was that like? you know, yourself two years ago, you're definitely in this materialistic view. everything's very black and white, and then you start getting into this world of near-death experiences, uh, psychic phenomenon, and now energy entanglement. Your mind must have been getting Mm -hmm. blown.
1: (laughs) It was totally blown. And it's so interesting to talk to, to, there there are people with different backgrounds everywhere. When I talk to you, to you it's very obvious, these things. When I talk to people in the business world that I work in, it's like, what, I've never heard of entanglement. Even that, which is a very scientific thing. Uh, But then when you start talking about near-death experiences, it's very new. Which is why I had to write this book for those who have never seen these things before. Um, but it was, so my worldview was extremely bleak before I got into this. Um, I wouldn't have said it this way, but now I, I understand how I used to think, which is that once we die, our consciousness goes away because our consciousness and our memories are dependent on our brain. So once you die, it's over. So if you try to think about meaning in life, there really isn't any meaning. It's just a rationalization because anything that's good or bad that happens is wiped out once you're dead. And I know that sounds horrible, but that's what is implied by the materialistic worldview, which is is very much what I was under, that nothing actually matters. So to switch around to say, wait, actually, actually everything matters a lot was very difficult. Uh, But I think that underlying belief system that I think pervades a lot of academia and our education system, and therefore many of the people in society today, um, it leads to angst, it leads to fear of death, whether or not it's stated, it leads to this idea that, oh, you only live once, and this is it. So I may as well indulge as much as I can, even if people aren't acting as extremely as that, I think there's a subtle uh, belief system there. And then also the notion of separation. Oh, well, I'm separate from you. When we start talking about quantum entanglement, and then some of the phenomena described in the book, it suggests that we are actually interconnected on a fundamental level of consciousness, which is something I wouldn't have accepted at all before. But that seems to be the case that everything is actually connected, even though we can't see it with our eyes. So if that's true, then all the separation that we're seeing between me and you and, and me and the listeners, that at the core level of consciousness is not accurate anymore. So when we think about treating each other differently, if we're part of the same consciousness, it's actually only rational to treat people well because they're another version of you. So it's, it's selfish to be altruistic because you're helping yourself. That is not a perspective I would have had before.
0: Mm, amen. Um. And I think that you bring up a really good point because I feel like, again, I've been in this world for many, many years. And I think that what is so important is you ask the question of why the hell does all this matter? Why the hell am I here? What is the purpose of all of this? You know, what is the purpose of me owning this beautiful home and this BMW and all of these things and the people that I surround myself with, if in 20 years I'm going to drop dead, what's the point? So I think what is so amazing about really embracing this theory, and I love the title of the book "The End to Upside Down Thinking," because it is so upside down is that the the true point is that we all are interconnected, and yes, the way that we it 's not the things that we acquire it's it 's not the the people that we keep company with that you know that are going to advance our status. At the end of the day it's about how we treat one another and how we help one another and how we help them on their journey and then you know they help us so that is where the growth and the lessons are and that's where the soul growth occurs and so i think that when you look at the worldview in that way then that is where you find meaning and it makes so much sense because when people give and when they help another Intrinsically we feel so amazing and you might not be able to put your finger on it why but it comes back to that entanglement we're all interconnected so we know that if we're making them feel good it makes us feel good if we take from them we feel really crappy you may think oh well that's my you know I feel guilty but at the end of the day it's, it's this idea that, that we are all interconnected and we are picking up on them so going from this idea of a bleak existence of why the hell am I here? I have no purpose. You know, what's the point of it all to, wow, you know, I can spend the next 60 years really giving back, you know, being an example of what compassion and kindness looks like and the point of helping one another out. And, you know, basically going from this black and white worldview to this very expansive, how can I make a difference? How can I serve What's that been like for you? Because I'm sure most of my audience here is, is pretty open minded. They're pretty advanced, but I'm sure there are people listening going, I'm not sure about this, you know. So mm-hmm. what's that been like for you to go from this place of complete bleakness to, wow, there's a, there's a huge point to all this?
1: Mm. It was a big adjustment. Big adjustment. It didn't happen overnight. It took a lot of being exposed to the research and talking to different people. I'm actually starting my own podcast where I interview many of the scientists that I talk about in my book, people who have had near-death experiences. So it took that amount of like devotion to trying to understand it for it to really sink in and become internalized. Uh, But I think I've definitely become much more focused on being able to help people. I wasn't against helping people before, but now it seems much more central to existence. And at least where I am in my life now, the book is one way of doing that, which is to put all the, what I think is the best evidence in one place for people in terms of where we are in 2018, the best evidence we have today in one place to hopefully uh, expose people to things that they haven't been exposed to before, or for people who have had certain experiences. Um, I hear this all the time of someone says, well, I had this crazy experience where I felt like my deceased grandmother was speaking with me, but I didn't tell anyone. And now everyone tells me these things because I'm, I'm now I'm the person they tell. But this gives uh, people who've had an experience a way to rationalize what's happened. In many cases, I think they, things might actually be real, and that there's science that can back it up. That many people haven't heard about because it's swept under the rug. Or I mean, I was at Princeton while the Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research Lab existed. This was run by the former dean of engineering. I had no idea the lab existed when I was there. It was totally swept under the rug because it was so controversial. They were studying remote viewing, which is the ability to perceive something without being there physically. They're studying the way that the mind can have a very subtle effect on machines, meaning mind affects matter. Uh, so this was cutting-edge stuff that I didn't even know about when I was there. So I can imagine what other people, uh, that, that many people have not been exposed to this. So in terms of how I can help people, what, what, one thing I'm trying to do now in my early stages of, of being exposed to these topics is to provide information to those who are interested in learning more.
0: I think, I really do think it's going to be powerful. And it's one of the reasons why I started this podcast is that I wanted to give people an outlet and permission to be able to talk about these things and to learn about this phenomenon. And even if they don't uh, want to share their own experiences, just the sheer idea that it exists and that there are other people that are willing to come on and talk about it, I think is palpable because I think people get really concerned about wanting to stay with the cattle and not wanting to stir the pot. And so they've experienced their grandmother or they've seen phenomenon or or things happen and they don't know how to explain it. And then all of the materialistic, you know, which is all the propaganda of why it doesn't exist and don't pay attention to it. And all of that is over there. And if you do that, you're the the kid in the tinfoil running down in the neighborhood. God forbid you don't want to be that kid. So everybody stays in their lane and i think it's really important to have books like this coming out from somebody who is well educated and says this stuff exists we can't explain it but it does exist and i think it's important that you have the podcast because all of these you know well educated scientists are like well you know we were taught this way but you know now we're starting to see that maybe today's you know science fiction is actually going to be tomorrow's fact and i think that what is so great is that as I was reading the book, all of the things that you're talking about—remote viewing, psychic phenomena, near-death experiences—the um, uh, being able to uh, change energy in other areas, like this is my world. You know, this is what I do every day with feng shui, and and we get clients who email us and like they can't explain what happened. We can't explain what happened, but they always experience something, and we shift and move energy all the time. You know, I'll do. Uh, a chi infusion on someone and I actually did one this morning for a woman who was going into surgery and she said, Jesus, I haven't felt this good in 10 years. I can't believe that this happened. So I can't explain it, but there's definitely something more to it. There's definitely something that's going on. So I'm curious, you know, like Jessica Utz was talking about this idea of, can we just stop saying that it doesn't exist and start focusing on it after your research do you feel like we're getting to that place are we getting to a point where you know there's going to be enough people going okay there's something to this we should start funding it because i think that's a big issue too is there's no funding for it
1: it's a huge issue and if you look at who is studying these things from a, a highly scientific perspective in the u.s right now the lab in princeton has been shut down shut down in 2007 and dr robert john passed away some of his researchers roger nelson and Brenda Dunn are still conducting research um, separately. The Global Consciousness Project is one area and Brenda Dunn has a, a, a Institute on Consciousness. But that, those, these are pretty small. Um, the Division of Perceptual Studies at the University of Virginia is studying these phenomena. This is at the medical school. There are some very smart scientists that are studying near-death experiences. They're studying children who have past life memories. Um, so these are, these are very credible scientists looking at these things. Another is the Institute of Noetic Sciences in Petaluma, California, founded by Edgar Mitchell, who's an Apollo 14 astronaut. They're one of the leading institutes in the world. And then I think it's really scattered. So we don't have many people looking at this. I think funding will really help it. Um, but part of the problem is that people are very afraid to even look at these topics within a mainstream institution. Um, I've talked to many people in my podcast about this, where it's, it's like academic... It's like suicide to say you're interested in these topics before you get tenure. Um, I had a a woman, she's a very brilliant cognitive scientist who was at um, a, a highly regarded institution in the U S who was studying precognition, which is the ability to know the future sometimes subtly before the future happens. And I have a chapter on this in my book. She was putting this on her resume as she was on the tenure track. um, And people were saying, Hey, can you please just take off this precognition stuff from your resume? Just remove it. Um, another scientist that I talked to actually in the philosophy department at the university, he said, basically the best thing he ever did in his career was not open his mouth about these things until he got tenure. So I think until this attitude shifts, where people are at least open to studying these things, we need more scientists to say, Hey, we're interested in these phenomena. And then they can start requesting funding for this type of, uh, this area rather than the more conventional things that they've been looking at. So what I'm hoping to do with this book is to Put enough evidence out there that people don't really have a choice but to say if we're actually going to be scientific which is looking at evidence then how do we explain this evidence how do we explain that these things are happening statistically and sometimes beyond statistics we need to come up with something
0: yeah i like i mentioned earlier i just uh i've read all of dean radden's books uh and he's with the noetic science sciences and I found it so interesting. He talks about the sigma results. And and I guess that's the the level of scientific proof of something. And like, you know, he would get these high, like eight sigma results on something, which is like a trillion billion to one or something. And he's like, but these other guys who are getting three sigmas, well, they're winning Nobel prizes. Where am I? Where's my Nobel prize?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's right. So So that what you're... yeah. I find
0: that so fascinating that they're getting these mind-blowing results and they're still being ignored.
1: Mind-blowing results. So the, the, st- the, the instance where he said that was with regard to a quantum physics phenomenon known as the, the observer effect, where the observer actually changes the behavior of a particle from being like a wave to being like a particle. It's one of the biggest mysteries in physics. Why is something behaving like a wave, meaning it's only existing in probability, and then when you look at it, it turns into a physical particle. Why does that happen? He ran studies showing that consciousness seems to have an effect because people are affecting the wave-like behavior when they're not even there physically, when they're just putting their mental attention to something. It's totally mind-blowing. I mean, I think he should win a Nobel Prize for this. He ran studies over seven years, and he's having a hard time getting people to want to replicate it because it's so controversial. And his results, if you look at the statistics, are at least in line with what people have gotten for a Nobel Prize. Um, it's, it's just mind blowing. I mean, he put out, he won an award for that study and he tweeted about it and got like 18 likes or something. You know, it's a very small award that, that people aren't hearing about. I can't believe that people haven't heard more about these things, but I guess in the scientific community, when people are used to a certain paradigm, it takes time to adjust to it. I mean, to me, this is probably the biggest paradigm shift in human history. This is bigger than earth isn't flat. This is bigger than the Copernican revolution because it's, it's talking about what we are as human beings rather than the external environment. This is a redefinition of who and what we are. So that I think naturally will have some resistance because people will say, and even me, ask, wait, no, I know who I am. I'm a biological organism that has become conscious because of evolution and things that ha- are happening in my brain that I can't quite understand. And that's the reason I'm here having an experience and that's it. So to shift from that is very difficult.
0: Yeah. And again, I find it so fascinating because in the line of work that I do, literally I sell energy. That's what I do. I'm changing people's lives because I'm changing their energy and I'm shifting them and I'm making their lives better. And we get our best results when it's at a distance. In fact, the majority of our business is where I am affecting people's energy and the energy of their homes and the energy of their energetic systems at a distance with Mind-blowing results, like you cannot explain, you know, I do something for someone in Chicago or Florida, and they get an immediate result, and it's like, I did something here in Nashville. So that's why I resonated so much with with Dr. Redden, is that what he is studying and what he is doing is what I am ex- experiencing every single day And there's basically the group of people who are absolutely on board with it and understand it and appreciate it. And then there's this big group over here going, yeah, no, I can't see it. So it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. And so we need to figure out how to convince these people so that, you know, noetic sciences and all these, you know, small other firms can grow and get the funding that they need so that we can stop questioning it. Like Jessica says and start actually studying it so that we can determine maybe how it's happening.
1: Yeah. I think it's, it's really important, not only for science and to understand how energy works and all, and, and I think it will affect medicine and how we treat people medically. There's a whole, I think category of medicine that is not, um, if we look at children who have past life memories, that's being studied at the University of Virginia. In some cases, the children have physical deformities, birthmarks, Um, they're, they're actual, in one case, I show a leg that's been deformed based on the way the girl described dying in a past life. So what we're seeing in these cases is, um, physical changes based on something that's not genetic and that's not environmental ostensibly. So what is this third factor? And this is what the university of Virginia professors say. What's this? is, Is there a third factor affecting our bodies? If that's true and our medicine's ignoring something that affects our physical form, I mean, what's our medicine missing? So for science and medicine, this is enormous. And I think beyond that, which I was alluding to earlier, how we treat each other, if this is real, if people internalize this stuff as being real, then the interconnectedness, I think, becomes real. And I I would hope that could have an effect on how we all treat each other, both in interpersonal relationships and also more broadly between nations.
0: Yeah, I agree 100%. And it's funny because you know because i have been in this world for so long that anytime i start to get sick or if any illness or anything pops up i go straight to the energy healer i never go to the doctor i ne- allopathic medicine is like so out for me it's there for trauma and that's it <laughs> to me it's like okay let's <laughs> let's go in at an energetic level and really get to the root of the problem as opposed to let's just do you know fix the little symptom but that's kind of where i'm at and i really feel like In your book, you've proven that this stuff does exist. This is how we should be thinking. This is how we should be approaching every portion of our life, you know, and treating people differently. And I'm hoping that um, just the science and all of the the interviews and the people that you spoke with, and hopefully too with your podcast, we can start shifting that paradigm. I've been trying for 20 years. (laughs) Yeah. So maybe we can start making some waves here and, and start shifting the energy so that people can start paying attention to um, this idea of upside down thinking,
1: right? <laughs> yeah. Well, what I'm hearing from scientists who have been in this for a long time is that from, from their experimental empirical standpoint, we're just getting to the point where there's enough evidence scientifically that people really need to start looking at it. And we, all, we haven't always had that in the past where it's just been more anecdotal. And we're now having studies like Dean Radin's studies on the double slit uh, collapse of the wave function, that took him seven years to do and a, and a lot of years to get funding. Um, so we're at that tipping point, and now we have people like Brian Josephson, who's a Nobel Prize winner in physics at Cambridge. I interview him on my podcast. He's talking about how telepathy is a real thing, mind-to-mind communication, and that quantum physics might help us explain it. He talks about psychokinesis, which is how the mind affects physical matter, not only on a small scale but also in terms of bending metal. It's something he and I talked about on in my podcast. And this is a Nobel Prize winner in physics. So I think when you have big people like that who are very well respected talking about these things, people hopefully will start to at least question. Um, I, I don't know. I'm going to be very curious to see how people react to this body of evidence. I mean, as I put it together, I, I wonder what some of the counters will be. I mean, can I prove that every single study is 100% bulletproof? I don't think I can. I mean, I haven't run them. I I think I trust many of the scientists. But to me, it's the full body of evidence. Could someone disprove every single example, every single study over all these decades, over many different experimenters? I think it's extremely difficult to do that, if not impossible, other than saying, oh, it's just all made up without having an explanation for it. And if even one of these phenomena is real, we can't explain it through the materialist assumption that consciousness just comes from the brain and is localized to the brain. So to me, it's the full body of evidence that I think is difficult to disprove. And given that, what do we think about reality? How do we come up with a reality that can account for and accommodate these phenomena?
0: Yeah. And uh, you mentioned that in your book, the file drawer phenomenon, where people think that you know the, the test results have been um, tweaked. And I have to say that I think that when you're dealing with this type of phenomenon, because there is so much ridicule and so much criticism, I feel like the the testing and, and the um, experiments that are done are probably 10 times more regimented than actual real everyday experiments. They're probably dotting all their I's, crossing all of their T's. They're doing everything to perfection because they know it's going to be ridiculed. So these experiments, I feel, are like, 10 times stronger than what most scientific experiments are because they are going to get blamed for the file drawer phenomenon.
1: I totally agree. And that's what the scientists tell me who are in the space. Another thing they say is this notion that we're tucking away the bad results in a file drawer would imply that we're running many more studies than we're reporting that would require funding, but this is an underfunded area. So it actually doesn't line up to say that they just have all this money to run studies, to run extra studies so that they can throw the bad ones out. Um, so I agree with you that, that that these these scientists are very brave, number one, and they're using rigorous empirical methods to look at these studies because the results are so controversial that they know they'll be questioned. So I think they're very strong. And again, the fact that we have them across so many different researchers over many decades across different phenomena that all point to the same thing, it's that accumulated evidence to me that's very strong.
0: Not only do you have all this data over a large period of time, but in all different areas of the world. So now you can argue, oh, well, we have the internet, but in the 50s, 60s, 70s, when these experiments are being done and you've got one being done in India and one being done in America and they're getting the same results, you can't deny that there's something there. You can't deny that there's data there that there's gotta be some truth to it. So I think that's something that also needs to be looked at. I'm curious as we're wrapping up here, what would you like to leave the audience with today as far as you know, what you really came out with, with writing this book and where your materialistic view has now turned into this higher expanded self-awareness and consciousness. What would you like to leave them with today as to what your experience has been like and, and what you hope that they have captured from this?
1: So, I would say maybe two things one from the scientific perspective, and one from the everyday living perspective. So, from the scientific perspective, what this whole process has reminded me is that there is so much that we do not know, and that there is a tendency throughout history, and even for myself, to think that we know more than we actually do. Um, So, what this has taught me is there's a whole body of evidence and phenomena that conform to common sense, they don't conform to our everyday, ordinary perceptions, and yet they are real. So that has led me to be open-minded to evidence that might challenge my worldviews. So I think that's an important thing to keep in mind, not only for what I do with my book, but also in business and other areas just to be open-minded to things and not to get stuck in, in some perspective because it's not always correct. So that's one thing that might be helpful to people. Another is like we've talked about with the life review, the implications for how we treat each other. I think my, my worldview has shifted a lot in terms of, just everyday life and whether it's business or otherwise um, thinking about people as different expressions of this universal consciousness, which seems to me to be the best explanation for how this works is that there is one big consciousness beyond space and time. Um, And if that's true, then we're not actually separate. So the way that I look at another individual or anything else in this physical realm that's being experienced by consciousness is, is has much more significance to me.
0: I love it. And I'm so glad that you landed on let's treat each other better. How can you serve? How can you give back? Let's be kind. Let's be kind (laughs) to one another. Mark, I want to thank you for coming on the show today. Uh, Mark's new book is called An End to Upside Down Thinking. It actually came out uh, in September. Um, If people are interested in learning more, aside from purchasing the book, where can they find you and find out more information about you?
1: My website, markgober.com. And I'm on social media, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. But my website is a good place to start.
0: Yes. Share all of your amazing psychic phenomena, telepathy, uh, remote viewing, um, near-death experiences, everything that you've had, reach out to Mark because he wants to hear from you. Right, Mark?
1: Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Amanda.
0: Personally, I have to say that I've seen a huge shift occur over the last 20 years or so. Many of you who have been listening to this show for a while have heard me talk about my first experience back in the 90s buying my first deck of tarot cards. If you haven't heard that story, the short of it is it was basically an embarrassing debacle that took place at a Borders bookstore That included four people and an announcement over the intercom system of the weirdo chick who needs tarot cards that were locked up. It was so embarrassing. There was no such thing as Amazon or the internet or any place like that. So the world of Woo was extremely different back in the 90s. And there was a strong materialistic view about consciousness, reincarnation was not anything that anybody discussed, remote viewing, psychics, that was all weirdo stuff. And I have to say that I'm starting to see a lot more books coming out about this phenomenon and how it has been proven and how it has been researched. And I love the fact that spiritualism is becoming really strong on a lot of people's radars. I'm hoping that after listening to this today, most of you are probably already on board with what a lot of Mark's talking about, a lot of stuff that's in his book, but I'm hoping that if you've been on the fence, maybe, just maybe, you might start considering this idea that something does happen outside of ourselves. Something does happen beyond this physical world that we call Earth, or maybe the human experience. Either way, I hope that this expands your minds and especially your hearts to do good towards others. Show others compassion and kindness because we all are connected. We all matter and we all deserve compassion towards each other. And you may be saying to yourself, but uh, Amanda, I feel like crap. Like if I'm not happy, how am I supposed to share compassion with others? Here's the cool thing. I have put together a really kick-ass ebook that is free to all of my podcast listeners. I'm calling it the Transformation Challenge. It's three easy steps to rapidly change your life with feng shui in mind. And what this free ebook is going to do is it's going to show you how to overcome adversity. It's gonna show you how to rise to the challenge, you know, with a little more grace. And come out on the other side, kicking ass and taking names. I get it. It can be really hard to open your heart and be kind to others when you're going through the thick of it. You're unfocused. You're feeling like obstacles are being thrown at you left and right. How can you be kind in those kinds of moments, right? This ebook is going to show you how. All you got to do is go to gatesinteriordesign.com forward slash rapidly change your life. All you got to do is fill out your email in there and you will get my free ebook on how to transform your life with feng shui. I guarantee you this is going to help has a great little explanation of how feng shui can help you and how to better pay attention to the energy around you and hey, how it's affecting your mood. All right, everyone, I hope that you have enjoyed this show today. If you like the channel, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. We're trying to get those reviews up and and get all the hoorays that we can so that iTunes takes notice and I don't know, maybe mentions us or something. This is a kick-ass podcast. We need to let the world know. That way more people can start being compassionate and learn really kick-ass energy techniques. Right? Hell yeah. All right, everyone, my name is Amanda Gates. If you'd like more information, head on over to the website gates Or if you'd like to reach out to us, you can find us at let's chat at thegatescompany.com. And hey, trust the vibe, cause the energy never lies.